Thank you, Catherine. God, we thank you for this time together. We pray that you would be powerful to move through your spirit and your word, that we might be changed, that we might see who you are with a greater degree and how lowly we are before you to a greater degree, that we might be drawn deeper into your heart, that we might be more conformed into the image of Christ. Bless us this morning in these ways, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was a a dispute over the ownership of a pig that started it all. Randolph McCoy accused Floyd Hatfield of stealing his hog. And a trial ensued, and the local justice of the peace was brought in, and Bill Stanton was called to testify. And he testified that Floyd Hatfield owned that hog, and Floyd won the trial. Now, Bill Stanton himself was actually related to both the McCoy family and the Hatfield family, the McCoys by blood and the Hatfields by marriage. But the matter wasn't settled at the trial, and unfortunately, two McCoy boys later murdered Bill Stanton in the street for his support of the Hatfields. So starts the story of one of America's most well-known family feuds. That's how it all began, with a childish disagreement over the ownership of a pig that escalated into murder. And by the time the family feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys finally came to an end, dozens of family members on both sides had been murdered over the course of several decades. And where forgiveness could have prevented the unnecessary murder of dozens of children, fathers, and brothers, evil prevailed, and instead retribution won the day. And when all was said and done, both families had been devastated, all because of a pig. Evil begot evil for generations while mothers wept and sons died. I'd love for you to open with your Bibles, or open in your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And the Hatfield and McCoy feud, uh, maybe you've heard of it before, there was a documentary that came out not too long ago, but it's a story that illustrates the wisdom of God in the commands of Scripture and the foolishness of man when he declines to hear the wisdom of God. Evil begets evil. And the Christian response to evil and to that cycle in particular should always be to overcome evil with good. And this is the point that Paul is going to communicate to his friends in Thessalonica today in our text. It's just one verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. So let's read this together. The Apostle Paul writes, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Well, because we're Christians and uh, we live in a, in a mostly 
Christian-built culture. We've heard this before. It's familiar to us. There's no surprises here, right? So I think it might be helpful for us to understand kind of the cultural context and background between that, that differentiates our world and, and the Roman world in the first century to help us grasp just how profound this idea is. See to it that no one gives evil for evil. First, remember the Thessalonian Christians, most of them were pagan converts. They weren't Jews for the most part. They were Roman pagans who had found Christianity through the ministry of Paul. And as a result of their conversion, because they had forsaken paganism, many of these Christians were under persecution from their fellow citizens. These were Roman citizens committed to the Roman way of life. They worshipped the state, Caesar as God, and they were suspicious of any new religion that might hamper Rome, that might bring harm to Rome. They generally disliked Christians because Christians refused to tolerate Romans' gods. They refused to bow to Caesar and worship him. And Christians actually in the first couple of centuries were, were called atheists because they denied the pagan gods. They refused to worship no god except Jesus Christ. And so they were seen as being antithetical to the idea of God. Furthermore, Romans were driven by this strong value for honor. It was dishonorable in Roman society to suffer a wrong from somebody and not then seek retribution. If you were shamed, it would bring shame upon your family if you did not then uh, seek to find retribution. In fact, a prominent Roman philosopher and statesman, Seneca, said that vengeance was legitimate within the Roman culture to maintain your honor on one condition, just that it didn't harm the empire. If you could get away with it without bringing harm to Rome, you were totally justified. And so we're dealing with a a setting here where it's culturally good and culturally acceptable to repay evil for evil, especially where the honor of the nation of Rome is concerned. But then second, it's also important to remember as we look at this text, the Old Testament backdrop of uh, what's going on in Paul's mind, the law of the Old Testament. The Old Testament sought to bring an end to the cycle of retribution like McCoy killing Hatfield indefinitely by limiting the degree to which you could take vengeance upon somebody, not utterly outruling it, okay? Okay. So if your neighbor's axe head flew off and uh, killed your cow in your backyard, you then got to uh, have retribution by taking his cow. But you couldn't go and slaughter his whole herd as a result of his axe head killing your cow because that would be too far. You could only take revenge to the point of sort of equal justice. If you got into a fight with your brother and you got your eye knocked out, you got to pluck his eye out. But you couldn't go knock out both of his eyes or murder him because that would escalate things inappropriately. You could only do what was fair. And the idea in the Old Testament then was to head off cycles of vengeance by making the suffering that people experienced more or less equal instead of allowing it to escalate into something out of control. This was what was called the lex talionis, the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
Okay, now I've said repeatedly through this series that the church, church in Thessalonica was a pretty exemplary church, okay? Is this really a, a teaching that these people need to hear? Don't repay evil for evil, right? I've, I've said they're, they're doing it pretty well. But even though they're a good church, an exemplary church, they're not without their issues, okay? As I already mentioned, there's this persecution that's taking place upon the Christians from the Roman pagans outside of the faith who live in their city. They dislike this Christian movement very much, and it's bringing shame upon the city in the eyes of Rome. And so the Roman pagans, to maintain their honor, have brought uh, suffering upon the Thessalonian Christians. And we also know from chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, and even chapter 5, where it talks about the idea of admonishing the idol, that there is some temptation within even the body of Christ for these Christians to repay evil for evil. And so as good as the church in Thessalonica might be as an exemplary body of believers, it is far from perfect. And so this ethic, too, needs to be taught to them as Paul is laying out a series of commands. And this brings us to just an important point with this text in general, okay? The human fondness for the need for retribution. The human fondness for revenge. The natural tendency for people to respond to evil with evil. They think that that response is justified. Whether that be the outright vengeance of the Hatfields and the McCoys killing one another, or more subtle forms like passive-aggressive cruelty. Now, anyone who has a child or anyone who has raised a child understands that vengeance or retribution just is at the very core of who we are, right? I hear some chuckles because you know where I'm going with this. You deal with this deep-seated tendency on a day-to-day basis if you have children. Uh, My kids are home now from school for the summer, And since I work from home, um, I'm dealing with this multiple times a day right now, okay? And you know how it goes. You take my toy, so I hit you and take the toy back. You won't play with me, so I won't play with you. And I go to my room and I close the door and tears are shed. You say something mean to me, and so I passive-aggressively steal your blankie and hide it someplace where you won't know where it is when bedtime comes been done in my house. It's the childish feuds that take place among people, a lot like the Hatfields and the McCoys, escalating to murder but starting with a pig. Really? Okay, but hold on a minute because you're chuckling and we're laughing at, at children, but let's not pretend that childish behavior is localized only to children. Don't allow yourself to be deceived into thinking that you've outgrown this kind of behavior because you're an adult. I know that there are people in this room who avoid other people in this room because of some prior offense. It's not outright revenge, but your behavior of withholding yourself is an evil response to evil that's been done to you. I know that there are people in this room who, when they are wronged, they go to somebody else in this room to talk about the way they were wronged. Instead of going directly to the person, they gossip or they slander delicately, 
quietly instead of dealing with the issue. I know that there are husbands in this room who, when their wives rightly criticize them, calling them to a higher standard of love in their house, the husbands instead passive-aggressively just check out in the relationship. And I know that there's wives in this room who, when their husbands don't meet their expectations, in very subtle ways they belittle their husbands in response. I mean, from tailgating the person who cuts you off to leaving the dishes for your lazy spouse to clean, to holding a grudge against your Christian, or brother, Christian brother or sister for the offense they've caused you. We all behave like little children in this area of repaying evil for evil in just small daily acts, don't we? We're like Roman pagans seeking to hold on to our honor so that the world might recognize just how great we are. We repay an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, or worse, like the Hatfields and the McCoys, we seek ways not to get equal retribution, but to actually escalate the situation so that in the end we can say, I won. I came out on top. We are guilty of this kind of God-dishonoring behavior, and where that's the case, we need to repent. Because the way of Jesus is altogether different, and it leaves no room for this kind of childish behavior, this sin. Now Paul, in in this one verse, he's only passing on the teaching that Jesus himself gave to his disciples, to those who would call themselves residents of the kingdom of God, children of God, Christians who had chosen to take up their cross and die to themselves daily and follow him. Paul writes, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now this verse itself is an escalation, not an escalation of evil, not an escalation of revenge in response to evil, but an escalation of grace in response to evil, where evil is done. It's built right here into the verse because Paul, he doesn't stop with the first phrase of the sentence. Do you see that? Although that's hard enough, isn't it? Paul doesn't simply say to the Thessalonian Christians, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Wouldn't that be hard enough? I think so. To just let an offense go. To let it roll off your back. To forgive. To not harm bitterness or anger. Even if you don't respond with revenge, that's hard enough, isn't it? We have our work cut out for us right there, if we're honest. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But Paul, following Jesus, goes exponentially beyond that. It is not enough for Christians to merely be neutral, avoiding evil. No, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone in response to evil. It is not enough for Christians merely to let bygones be bygones. It's not enough for Christians to only let an offense go and then forgive the offender. No, Christians are commanded to love their enemies, pray for those who persecute them, bless those who curse them, seek peace with those who have wronged them, and do good to those who do evil to them. 
Now, there are three powerful words here that help us really see how emphatically Paul wants this command to sink in, okay? The three words are this, always seek and everyone. Always seek and everyone. Paul says, always, always do good to those who do evil to you. Always do good to everyone. Not sometimes, not depending on the circumstances, not selectively, but always. Always. Then he uses the word seek. In my translation, the ESV has the word seek. But that word doesn't quite capture the definition of the Greek underlying it either. This word literally in Greek means to move rapidly and decisively toward an objective. To move rapidly and decisively toward an objective. Actually, there's an even more intense meaning, which means to harass someone. Consider this. So the Christian's response to the harassment of evil is to be aggressively harassing with good. Where evil is done to us with intensity, we respond with even more intensity in love and grace and goodness. Blessing. We actually seek to one-up the offender, not with revenge like the Hatfields and the McCoys, but with goodness and love like our God. And then he gives us the extent of our boundaries for this kind of response. He says, only to nice people who are nice to you. You're supposed to be like, no, that's not in my text. Right? He tells us that we are to behave this way to one another in the church, but also to everyone. This means that we repay evil or good for evil not merely to our family and friends, not merely to nice people who deserve it, not merely to the people that we like and those who are generally kind to us. No, we repay good for evil to everyone. Everyone. When we are paid evil, we are commanded to aggressively and liberally offer back goodness and grace to everyone. Honestly, how are you doing at that? And there's another escalation here that we might miss. Uh, Let's see if I can tease this out. The first escalation is that we repay good when we suffer evil. That's actually an escalation. But notice that Paul doesn't say here, don't repay evil for evil, but always respond to evil with good. That's not what he says. And that's significant. Paul simply says, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And so the point is that we should do good in response to evil, yes. But even before that, we should do good. We are to seek to head off the cycle of evil even before it begins, not only after it starts. This is like what Jesus taught when he said, do to others what you would have them do to you, right? Commonly called the golden rule. Just a good way to live your life. Treat people like you would want to be treated. Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is not a response. This happens prior to. 
So Christians are called to cut off evil before it even has a chance to manifest itself in retribution. We are to be constantly seeding cycles of goodness, not retribution. We're supposed to love people, not only in response to their acts of evil towards us, but even before they've wronged us. We are to escalate goodness all the time towards all people with a vengeance. We are to aggressively pursue the good of others. Now contrast this for a minute with the evil that we are so often guilty of. And let's just reflect honestly for a minute on how we tend to live. And don't go thinking about somebody else here. Think about yourself. Ask yourself if any of these behaviors describe you. Snapping back with a short temper at somebody who snaps at you. Behaving passive-aggressively towards somebody who has hurt you. Withholding yourself. Not being honest with somebody who has hurt you. And instead of addressing the issue, harboring a grudge, which is evil. It's unloving. Or maybe when someone finally does get the courage to confront you about an issue in your life, a sin or a shortcoming, maybe your spouse in particular, you repay that kindness with evil by turning the blame back on them, by avoiding responsibility for your sin. Maybe you're guilty of seeking to wound somebody who has wounded you. Gossiping and slandering people behind their back. Or maybe just leaving the person in their sin. How unkind of you to notice someone in sin and say it's not my problem. Instead of loving them enough to speak the truth so that they might be liberated. Or maybe you're guilty of bottling up your emotions, lying to yourself, thinking that you can let it go. All the while, you are actually repaying evil for evil by holding a grudge, stewing in hatred and bitterness, withholding your love from people who you don't think deserve it because they themselves are unloving, refusing to forgive somebody like God has forgiven you, or maybe just avoiding a person entirely instead of seeking out a relationship where you might bless them and do good to them. All of these kinds of behaviors, I hope you understand, they are outright disobedience to Jesus. And some of these things are subtle so that you can get away with it. Nobody will know. But God sees your heart. And all of these things, these evil actions, they bring shame upon the name of Jesus. They dishonor him. They are sin and they cannot be tolerated among the people of God who are called and commanded to always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And if you're guilty of engaging in any of these kinds of behaviors, then you have some work to do to more faithfully align your heart with Jesus. But let's be honest, can we? This is, this is so hard. Like some of these behaviors are so small but sometimes it's the smallest ones that are the hardest, isn't it? The reason why few communities look like this, why few churches even look like this, 
is because this is an incredibly difficult way to live your life. How is it possible for us as Christians to achieve this, to live like this, to give love in response to evil? And so as I close, let me offer you three tools for this task. I doubt any of them will be surprising, so let me just remind you of what you already know to be true. First, one of the reasons why we don't need to repay evil for evil is because our God is just. I think sometimes we can fall prey to this lie that like without our vigilantism, the world will run amok. Without us getting our hands dirty to straighten this other person out, they're going to get away with it and justice will prevail or injustice will prevail. If we don't make sure that this person's deeds are properly punished, nobody will make sure that this person's deeds are properly punished. And so we do. We become spiritual vigilantes. We take matters into our own hands to make sure that the world is a just place. We become judge, jury, and executioner. But if we look at this subject matter of repaying evil with good in other places in the Bible, we see that the principle of giving good for evil is grounded in the sovereign goodness and authority of our God. Why can you behave like this? Because God is God, and God is just, and He will justly repay every act of evil with righteous judgment, meaning you don't have to take matters into your own hands. Proverbs 20.21 says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and He will deliver you. And Paul in Romans 12 writes this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so in part, we can do this. We can respond to evil with good because we know that God's going to sort everything out in the end. No evil act will go unpunished. And fortunately for us, our evil acts are punished. Just Christ himself took the punishment. And so God is just and righteous and he will repay everyone according to their deeds, which means we don't have to worry about it. Second, this is not a labor that we endeavor to accomplish on our own. Repaying evil with good by the sheer strength of our will? Have you tried that? How well does it go? If it were entirely up to us, again, we would certainly fail at this. But God has given us his Holy Spirit to empower us to love like he loves. And because of the Spirit of Christ alive within us, we are transformed to be like Jesus, who on the cross, looking his accusers in the eyes, said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Paul understands that we're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit to be obedient in these things, which is why he writes in verses 23 and 24. Look there real quick. Chapter 5 still. He says, 
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who has called you is faithful. He will surely do it. At the end of this chapter where Paul spent the majority of his time passing on commands for good conduct to the church in Thessalonica, Paul includes this wonderful benediction for them, reminding his friends in Thessalonica that while they bear the responsibility of obedience to Jesus, they have the sanctifying power of God at their disposal to achieve that obedience. He reassures them that they can indeed follow these commands because God is faithful. He will surely give to them everything in which they need to walk in the righteousness that honors Jesus Christ. On your own, you could never repay good when evil is done to you. You couldn't do it, not consistently. But this is the way of God. It's woven into the very fabric of his being. The Lord is gracious and merciful, and he is faithful to lead his people into greater acts of goodness, teaching them through his own spirit how they too can be gracious and merciful, loving and slow to anger. And while we are called to obedience in the work of repaying evil for good for evil, We are also given all things necessary for this life of godliness through the Holy Spirit. And so don't despair in your responsibility to live like this because the Spirit aids you in your weakness. And if you feel weak in this area, then simply take that weakness before God who loves to show His power in our weakness that He might be greatly glorified and we might be greatly humbled. Finally, we have this renewing of our minds, which calls to memory the truth about how we have been treated by God himself. We are only extending to others what God has already given to us. Remember this, the wages of sin is death. Another way of saying that might be that the evil that we have done has earned us God's wrath for unrighteousness. But for those of us here who are in Christ Jesus, who've placed our faith in Him, who've surrendered to Him as Lord, we do not receive what our evil works deserve. Instead, because of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, we are given grace and forgiveness and mercy and love. And Christ Jesus then takes upon Himself on our behalf all of our punishment for the evil that we have done. And what it means to renew our minds then is this. When we are tempted to do evil in response to evil, we call to mind what is true. We who are evil have been given love and grace. We who are evil have received kindness and mercy and love instead of what our actions justly deserve. If we who are poor and wretched have received such mercy from God, far be it from us in our poverty to withhold goodness and mercy from others. If our great debt to God for our sin has been forgiven, then who are we to withhold the forgiveness of others? For far lesser crimes, too. 
And this is what Jesus wants us to be reminded of when we pray the Lord's Prayer, which says, Father, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. And in commenting on those words in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus adds, For if you forgive others of their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you of your trespasses. And so we have this third tool at our disposal as well. The powerful truth that God has given to us goodness when we did evil. He was good to us before we earned it. And he remains good to us even when we continue in sin and evil. The love and goodness which we extend to others then, it's not even really our own which we are offering. It is merely the overflow of what has been given already to us. And since this overflow is limitless because God's grace towards us is limitless, we find then an infinite supply of that same goodness and love to pass on to others even when they do us evil and are undeserving. We're going to do communion now, and we're going to do that by intinction, which means I'm going to pray, and then our worship team is going to come forward, and they're going to lead us in singing. And if Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, and you've placed your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, and you're committed to following him, then you're invited to make your way to one of the tables that we have in the back of the room. And you'll find the crackers and juice there. And you can just take the cracker and dip it right in the juice and just eat it right there. And if for some reason Jesus isn't your Lord, you've not placed your faith in him, come talk to me. I would love to walk you through that process that you too might have fellowship with us as we fellowship with God. But before you go to the table, two things. First, examine your heart before God. Allow Him to search you and to lead you into confession for your sin. Repent of that sin. Leave it behind you. Embrace forgiveness so that you can go then to the communion table no longer broken but rejoicing that Jesus gave his life for yours. Christ bought God's mercy for you through the shedding of his blood and the death of his body. And don't approach the table without an appreciation of that truth. But second, since the room will be moving around anyway because that's what happens when we do intinction, then I want to invite you, if you need to, to use this opportunity to be reconciled to your brother or sister the one who you failed to give goodness to when they did evil to you. Jesus says, if you go to the altar to offer your gift to God and on the way, you realize that you have sinned against someone, then you need to take a detour first and you need to be reconciled to that person before you seek to honor God at the altar. And then once you've been reconciled, go. Go and offer your heart to God. And so husbands, if you need to repent to your wives this morning, I encourage you to lean over as the music starts and do that before you go and take communion. And wives, the same goes for you. And brothers and sisters, if there's someone in this room who you have wronged, 
someone to whom you have done evil instead of good, then seek that person out. Speak that repentance to them. Be freed of that burden and be reconciled to God and them. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that where we have done evil, you have given us good in Jesus Christ. And I pray that these three things would rest heavy on our hearts. That you are God and you are just. And so we don't need to take revenge. I pray that we would remember that you've given us your Holy Spirit so that we might do all things according to your righteousness, that we might obey your commands. And I pray that we would remember how much goodness has been given to us when we were undeserving. That these things might resonate in our heart and empower us to live in accordance with this verse. And God, we give you thanks for the sacrifice of your son Jesus, the ultimate goodness in response to our evil. I pray that we would appreciate it, that we would love it, that we would cherish it, that we would worship you for it, that we would revel in it, that we would forsake our sin and embrace grace. And I pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.